Today, we are talking about protecting your most valuable asset. When we talk about good, prudent financial planning, the first thing we'll always check with clients is what protection do you have in place? Would you build your house on sand or would you put in some really solid foundations? And I think the answer is yes. You would always protect your property because you wouldn't want it falling down around you. That's the same with you and your financial circumstances. One of the biggest things that we get told is, well, insurance isn't worth it. It won't pay out. Not true. The stats are pretty staggering. You think the occasional recreational, you know, cigarette on a night out doesn't justify declaring it. I'm afraid it does. What we invariably see when we look at a more restricted view of just medics who have income protection, one of the highest claims levels is for burnout, anxiety, depression, that sort of area. When you're laying in the back of a HEMS air ambulance with your hand in the front and you in the back of the ambulance, that was that made those premiums seem really worthwhile. Today, we are talking about protecting your most valuable asset, not your iPhone, not your car, not your house. We're talking about protecting you. And if you've been following our podcast or emails for a while now, you probably know why I'm talking about protection even more these days because of my hand injury. So we also just added a new protection page on our website, which summarizes everything that you need to know, including how much sick pay you get, what kind of benefits you could expect, what type of protection you could think about getting. I'll put the link to that in the show notes. But on today's episode, we start off by talking about the basic things that you can insure yourself against. So we talk about income protection versus critical illness. What's the difference? When would you consider getting one over the other? Versus life insurance, what should it do? How long should it run for? What do you need? And what can help you to decide what you need? Then we get into talking about payout rates and the things that doctors claim for. And this was pretty shocking to me, not surprising, unfortunately, but pretty shocking what doctor illnesses we get. I think you could probably guess if you are a doctor, but that was pretty shocking. And we link to the Royal Medical Benevolent Fund there as well. Please check that information out. And then we go a little bit into talking about my own situation, how I think about protection now with the benefit of having unfortunately needed to claim on my protection policy. And would I do anything different? If you're watching on YouTube, great option to drop a question in the comments. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss an episode. New podcasts come out every Tuesday. YouTube, we're just playing around with it at the moment, so I'm not going to commit to a timescale, but most weeks we put something out there. Thanks so much for your support and such an important episode today. Thanks for watching or listening. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists, and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So it's my pleasure to welcome back to today's episode, Mike Harms from Medical and General Independent Financial Advisors. Hi, Mike. Hi, Tommy. So we're talking about something really important today, which we talk about a lot, but I still see people get it wrong. And that is protecting your most valuable asset. Now, your most valuable asset, it's not your house. It's not your phone. It's not your car. It's you. You are your most valuable asset. 
And there's also confusion about how you can protect that most valuable asset. So we're going to demystify all that today and go into what kind of things doctors claim for in your experience, Mike. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Where are we kicking off? <laughs> Shall we talk in general terms about protection and, and why it's important? Yeah. Also, like if you've been following the podcast or our emails, you might have known that I chopped my index, middle and thumb clean off uh, at the end of April. And so protection has come right into my radar. So let's maybe talk a bit about that as well, because I don't think I've really talked about how I'm still completely fine financially, despite not being able to work for some time now. So yeah, we'll do that a bit as well. But yeah, let's start us off. Great. Right. So what is protection? Protection is a sort of catch-all word that is the umbrella term for lots of individual products that will make up protection. So the product is the solution, but why we need to protect you is really sort of your objective. What's going on in your world? What is it you want to achieve over your lifetime? So when we talk about good, prudent financial planning, the first thing we'll always check with clients is what protection do you have in place? And the reason we ask that is that, and, and, and I know I've said this before, and I'm sure it's been mentioned in other podcasts, you know, the classic, would you build your house on sand? Or would you put in some really solid foundations? And if you knew that in the future you were going to go up a couple of levels, would you put in really beefy, solid foundations? And I think the answer is yes. You would always protect your property because you wouldn't want it falling down around you. So that's the same with you and your financial circumstances. Now, what you need in terms of protection and what sort of cover in place that's required will be determined by where you are in your life. So there are a lot of people that think when you're younger, don't need cover. Not strictly true. And we'll come on to a few reasons why. Then when potentially, if you decide to have a family, that's when things do really change. And we see a lot of people coming to us at that point in time because there's been a massive change in their lives. And all of a sudden, I think there's an element of vulnerability there thinking, crikey, we've now got this little human we've got to look after. And how on earth do we do that? And what happens if I die? And that's sort of that first moment of probably feeling your own mortality and I know you you see people that are in these predicaments day in day out but I guess for your own sanity you have to have a degree of separation and so I just think that there's that it's not until it actually becomes real to you in your life that necessarily it comes to the forefront of your minds so what are the main areas you need to think about? So, so when we're, we're giving advice to clients, we will talk about very matter of fact, we need to protect you if you're alive, but can't work, or we need to protect you if you die, or we more importantly, we need to protect your family if you die. And then there's something in between there, which is, you know, if you suffer critical illnesses and things like that. So there's lots of different products available to you. And one of the biggest things that we get told is, well, insurance isn't worth it. It won't pay out. Not true. Over 98 to 99% of all claims pay out each year. So the stats are pretty staggering. There's a 99% chance on average that the insurance will pay out. And the reason it will pay out or doesn't pay out, that 1%, the reasons why it doesn't pay out is the fact that you have been loose with the truth when you apply. So the way protection works is that you go through what's called underwriting on day one. That means the insurer will ask to see your medical records to understand more about your circumstances to see whether they're prepared to give you cover or not. And the biggest number one misdemeanor in not providing information is about whether you consume lots of alcohol or whether you smoke. 
And it might just be that you think the occasional recreational, you know, cigarette on a night out doesn't justify declaring it. I'm afraid it does because they have the ability to obviously look back. And actually, interestingly, they do something called a cotinine test. I don't know if you ever come across that, but it's where they basically take a swab of saliva and they can tell if you smoked in the last 12 months. That's what I'm led to believe anyway. But that is part of the process. And I've been through that process myself. So the point is, the reason why it's a 99% payout is because you go through this process up front. So almost if you've declared everything and they've asked for a GP report or they've looked into your health and your history and you've confirmed that everything you've said is true and honest, then in the event of a claim, there should be no fear that they won't pay out. Because the whole point of insurance is it is there to catch you. The majority pay in for the minority to claim and to receive income off the back of it. So hopefully that kind of clarifies a little bit about, you know, the background to it. But it might be worth us maybe just bringing up some slides and looking at some of the history of the various different things. Is that all right? Yeah. So if you're watching on YouTube, bonus section. And if you're listening (laughs) on the podcast, we're going to do our best to describe it. I usually describe the colors and Mike describes what the graph actually shows. So something for everybody. Brilliant. Right. Okay. So this is for those on YouTube, you can see who the private provider is that I'm using the information from, but it's because they give all the statistics annually. And this is already available out there on the internet. So if you know you are getting cover with a particular provider, you can ask about the claims history. You can Google that and it invariably will come up. So, you know, this is one of the mainstream insurers out there, household name. And last year, you know, they paid out 17 and a half thousand claims. They paid out over 3.8 billion in the last five years. And they roughly pay out on about 48 claims a day, which is staggering. When we look at the claims, life cover, they've paid out 12 and a half thousand claims on life cover alone and the youngest age someone's claimed is 23 and the oldest is 103 so that's quite a disparity but you can see they they cover all sorts of areas but where i think it again becomes quite interesting is the reasons why people claim so if we go down to income protection this is taking into consideration everyone in the uk that has an income protection plan with this particular insurer And what it shows here is the top claim causes for income protection. And this income protection comes in when you cannot work in your own occupation normally and your sick pay has run out with the hospital or from your practice. And in this scenario, it shows that the biggest cause for claims is musculoskeletal issues. So I presume that means bad backs, issues with your hips, legs, whatever it might be. But in general terms, the next reason is it's slightly different for females versus males, that 23% of all claims are for cancer within females. 52% of claims are musculoskeletal in men and a much lower level in cancer. Now, that's probably to do with, I guess, the age demographics, at, at what point people take the cover out and various cancers that may be more prevalent in females at certain ages than men. But the one thing that is lower than I would anticipate But I think this is where the general population sort of comes in and and probably disperses these figures is anxiety, depression, burnout. And what we invariably see when we look at a, a more a more restricted view of just medics who have income protection, one of the highest claims levels is for burnout, anxiety, depression, that sort of area. And that's pretty sad. Yeah, and I think it, it is extremely sad. And I think it's a quite a revelation, really, when you look at it and understand what is it that, that most of you are claiming for. So income protection, what is it? Let's just talk a bit about that. There's lots of different types of income protection. But if we were to say what's the gold standard out there, the gold standard 
would be a permanent health insurance contract. That's what they're called, income protection. It's permanent health insurance because they underwrite you on day one. They cannot change your terms once they've offered them to you. And it will remain in force. And doesn't matter how many times you claim for the same thing, it will continue to pay out for you. So it's very different to something like your home and contents insurance, where every year you renew it. And every year, depending on what you've claimed for, there may be an increase in the premium or they may exclude something. That's not how income protection works. And that's why sometimes there's a really good rationale for taking out income protection when you're younger, because invariably you should be hopefully fitter. You shouldn't have any health issues and the premiums will be far cheaper. And then that means you get the fullest level of protection throughout the rest of your career. So coming back to that gold standard, what is it you'd look for? You'd look for a permanent health insurance contract and you would want something called own occupation. And the reason you want own occupation is if you cannot do your job in any capacity, you want to know that this plan will pay out for you. If you took out something called daily living activities, there are some plans out there and they say, well, if you can't complete three out of five daily living activities, then we'll pay out. Those thresholds are much higher, as you can imagine, rather than I just cannot work in my occupation. So if you're a GP, you cannot be a GP. It will pay out. And that's quite important. The next thing is for how long you have that payout for. So invariably, you would want to take that cover out probably through to your planned retirement age or the state retirement age. Why so long? Well, Tommy, if you don't mind me using you as a casing example, had the situation for you been uh, a worse outcome, as in you weren't able to sort of save your hand and there was no prospect of you going back to being a GP in the future, you'd be heavily reliant on your income protection plan. Would you prefer to know that plan runs through all the way to your state retirement age, which means all your bills and costs and kids, you know, kids clubs and all the things you need to pay for are covered? Or do you think it would have been better to have gone maybe for a shorter plan because it was cheaper? Yeah, definitely. Like the longer plan. Was it penny foolish pound? Anyway, don't scrimp on it basically is what we're <laughs> saying. But I think, yeah, it's, it's, I've got like a unique perspective on it really now because I had it. I have it and I never thought I'd ever use it. And now I've used it. I don't really have any regrets about the decisions I made with what I got, but we can talk about that in a bit maybe. But yeah, I think you're right. It's just about securing your financial future and your families as well. Definitely having a family is what prompted me to take it out. Just to say on that mental health point that you made, have a listen to our podcast with the Royal Medical Benevolent Fund that we did. We're working with that charity which supports doctors with all kinds of problems. So check that podcast out because, yeah, it's a reflection of the nature of the job today that, as you say, the mental health is disproportionately a reason for claiming in healthcare professionals, which, yeah. So if you are struggling, check that out. But yeah, uh, I'm glad that you stressed own occupation as well because that is absolutely mandatory really if you're a doctor should we drill in a bit more on that like yeah absolutely so as i mentioned a moment ago it's about whether you can do your job if you're a surgeon if you cannot operate because you've had a hand injury or you know so say you think well i enjoy mountain biking and you might think well actually do you know what that's not going to cause me any issues but you're a surgeon and then all of a sudden you come off your bike and you damage your arm and that stops you from being a surgeon, the income protection will pay out because you have own occupation as a surgeon. So that's why it's important you get the definition correct. It's not that you can be a medic or a doctor in any other capacity. It's about the fact that you cannot be a surgeon. So that's probably the clearest example. 
And as you'd appreciate, therefore, premiums for surgeons tend to be a little bit higher. So we talk about class occupation and what sort of category you may or may not go into. And that is ultimately down to the type of job role you're in. If you're sort of a, a, a more mainstream doctor, then again, it will just be, can you complete your role in any capacity? Now, the question will then be, but what happens if I can go back and do something? Well, as you can imagine, an insurer is always going to want to want you to help you and support you get back to work. So the best thing you can do is obviously make sure you've got the right protection, but also talk to the insurer because they have a lot of support to help you on your road back. Now, if you come back and say, well, I can't go back and do that job, but I can do something else. Well, great, but it's on a lower salary, for example. Well, the insurance will top you back up to your previous level. So that's a pretty important point to raise is that it's a safety net that's there for you. It ensures that if you cannot work in any capacity, you still have income coming into the home and that will allow you to pay your mortgage, pay your bills, you know, pay for school, kids clubs, things like that, holidays, and also pay towards savings if you've got the right level of cover. But more importantly, it also ensures that if you cannot go back and do everything, that you can still have some support. So again, Tommy, I'm going to come back to you if that's okay. Obviously, your hand being cut off is quite a major, major situation. Now, were you a surgeon, that would probably preclude you from going back and doing some form of surgery, just in terms of dexterity and things like that. However, if you felt that you can go back and be a GP, but maybe you could do some training for GPs or you could go and do some university lecturing, well, then the income protection plan would pay out the difference between what you were receiving from that income and what you were earning pre-accident. So that's quite important. And it's the own occupation bit that is key to all of this. Yeah. Apologies for the small interruption. One of the reasons that I have income protection insurance just uh, bowled in to announce something really important. That was my youngest daughter. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that if you're on the pod. Can we talk a bit about the breakdown, like how you see the balance between, because you said you've got income protection, which protects your income. You've got critical illness, which protects you from a predefined list of critical illnesses. And you've got life, which basically ensures you against premature death. So how do you think about the balance between those? And, you know, how should we think about that? So I try to look at it in terms of value for money. And what I also think is the more likely outcome that you're going to claim for. And income protection is fundamentally, in my view, the most important form of protection you can have, apart from life cover, if you have liabilities and other things like that. And the reason I say that is it doesn't matter how old you are. If you cannot work, if you have rent to pay, if you have bills to pay, how will you pay those bills? How will you pay the rent? How will you pay the mortgage if you don't have an income? Now, you're fortunate in the NHS that you have really good sick pay. But depending on where you are within the NHS will be determine whether you have decent sick pay or not. So I come across some GPs who will have 52 weeks of, of guaranteed earnings from the practice. Some are in line with the NHS hospitals where it's 26 weeks full, then it drops to 26 weeks half. But actually, there's also some GP surgeries out there that will only pay some of their employees or partners three months full income and then zero going forward. So it's sort of when we look back at some of the stuff I've done with you on partnership agreements, it shows why it's absolutely imperative that you look at your contract and you also understand what sick pay you're receiving. What you then want to do is dovetail any protection that you get income protection to match that sick pay. So as soon as your sick pay stops, 
the income protection kicks in. Now, the longer deferred period you have, so a deferred period is how long it takes before it kicks in. The longer deferred period you have, the cheaper the insurance will be because the chances of you claiming are reduced. So that's good news for an insurer, and obviously they'll reduce the premium accordingly. Now, income protection, as I said, will pay out under all circumstances, unless your underwriting, when you've gone through your medical, excludes something. And that can happen. They can look at your history and say, well, because you've claimed for a hip injury, we're not going to cover a hip injury in the future on that particular site. And that's purely because they know the stats is a heightened risk and they think the chances of recurrence could be quite high. Equally, they might turn around and say, well, we think there's an increased risk of cardiovascular disease for whatever the reasons might be. And they may increase the premium because they perceive you to be a higher risk. So all of these things would be discussed with you by your advisor and you'd get that information as you go through the process. But income protection is going to pay out in the vast majority of cases in the event of illness, short term or longer term. So that's the first thing. It allows the family to continue with their lives. It allows you to continue to pay your mortgage and it allows you to continue saving for your retirement. Just because you're ill doesn't mean that you're going to die from it and doesn't mean that you want to claim. Critical illness cover. That is, as you quite rightly said, it's a predetermined number of illnesses that if you unfortunately suffer from one of them, it will pay out. Normally is around 45 to 50 definitions, depending on the provider you're with. And what they pay out for and what they don't pay out for will vary between those providers. But that is, if you suffer one of 45 conditions, it will pay out a lump sum. So when, we, when I tend to look at protection, what we will say is income protection is your priority alongside protecting your liabilities, such as your mortgage. Why do you want to protect the mortgage? Well, if you die, do you want your spouse if you have no children? Or do you want your family, if you do have a family, to be able to live there without any fear for the house being taken away from them in the event of your death? So day one, you've passed away. The house is paid off. That's a comfort, I would hope to know that the property and the family are secure. You've also then got to think about the income that is no longer then coming into the family. And one thing we often see is that sometimes people will say, well, I'm the main earner in the family and my partner is at home bringing up the children or there's some sort of combination of the two. And it's always the thought we should protect the person who is bringing the income in and not necessarily the person at home bringing the family up. In reality, it's equally important to protect both of you, because if the person looking after the children passes away, then that has an impact on your family finances as well. And also, you don't know how you're going to react to that situation. So if that unfortunate position happens, the idea of the protection is the mortgage is paid off, the house is rent free, you can live there. Secondly, if you then unfortunately are not well off the back of that, for understandable reasons, then your income protection kick in and actually start to you know, support your income levels that you may need. So really it's about protecting the family, protecting lost income to the family or to your spouse. And then the critical illness is really, for me, the cherry on the cake. So I, the reason I say that is it, it can be potentially more expensive than your traditional life cover and income protection setup. And when we're looking at sort of the reasons why you might claim, I think there are an awful lot more reasons to claim on income protection than there would be on a critical illness policy. So it depends on who you speak to as to who they what they think is more important. That's my rationale for what it's worth. 
And it really will come down to your own personal views and your own personal circumstances. So sometimes we'll get a client come to us and say, well, look, there's a there's been quite a bit of a history in our family of cancer. And that's something that worries you. And if that's something that worries you and you want to protect it, critical illness policy will probably be an appropriate form of cover for you. But it's all based on your personal circumstances. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think that's just a really interesting breakdown of how the balance strikes out. And you said that like, it depends on your own personal circumstances. So, so I was like, and it is quite expensive because unfortunately quite likely to get one of those things. So yeah, I've got, I've got life of course, and income protection, but no critical illness, criticize my logic. And by the way, it's too late if it is too late, cause I've already injured my hand. So probably uninsurable now from that point of view, which goes back to your point that you got to think about this early before you get something like get it early. You do, but also accept that if you have had something, you can still be covered for 99% of other things. And so the theory of, oh, well, I'm not covered for that. And that was the thing I wanted to be covered for. Well, I, I do understand that, but you've got to look at it from an insurance perspective. Why would they take on a risk knowing that there could be a higher chance of you claiming on it? it it's sort of a, and I understand why you might want it, but there are certain, certain rules around income protection, you know, certain things, if you've not, if you've not had that issue for five years or more, well, that can then be included. So there's lots of different iterations to what can be possible and what isn't necessarily possible, which is why it's important to have a conversation with a financial advisor about it. It's not going to be straightforward and putting it off because you think you won't get cover or because of the reasons that you've had an accident, it's not a reason to not investigate it. So for me, it's imperative that you do look at it. Another thing that people probably have never come across is something called family income benefit. And this is just another life cover policy that effectively replaces lost income in the event of death. And it's the amount of money that comes into the family. Normally, that's for people that do have families and you would cover a set level of income, usually up until your youngest child is age 23. So there's lots and lots of things you can do. What blend, what amount, what approach will be determined by a number of things, your personal circumstances, your budget and your views on the world. All of those points are extremely valid. Budget is going to be a big driver. So you have to accept that there is an element of cost to protection but it's about how much of your income would you be prepared to give up to protect the majority of your income. So you might say, well, actually, I'm prepared to give up 2% of my income to protect 98% of my income. It's sort of that sort of thought process there. Yeah, definitely. Like, <laughs> I'm really frugal and, you know, paying out the premiums for all those years hurt my frugalness. And I kind of try to think about it like when you're building wealth, you got to think about downside protection, right? So, you know, the worst case scenario, what if things go wrong? And what is that downside protection worth to you? So how I think about it is that, you know, I'm the main wage earner in our household. So if I was to get ill, injure myself or die, I could buy a product, which would effectively mean that I would never get poorer than that level of cover that I have. And actually, when you're laying in the back of a HEMS air ambulance with your hand in the front and you in the back of the ambulance, that was, that made those premiums seem really worthwhile. And I guess what I'm saying is like, I'm buying downside protection and I, I'm never going to get lower than this level of cover, which I've chosen. My family are going to be protected, whatever should happen. And it's just like peace of mind and it's expensive peace of mind, but I mean, I'm now completely biased and completely conflicted because for all those years <laughs> at Medics Money, I was saying, get protection, you know, and, and everyone's just like, yeah. 
And now I'm just going to be like evangelical about it for obvious reasons. But that's just how I think about it. Just think about it like there's a level that you could, if somebody said there's a some policy and you could never go below this level of wealth, like what is that worth to you? Uh, and I thought I knew what it was worth, but it turned out it was worth a lot more than that. Because yeah, when I was laying in the back of the old chopper, that was on my mind. Like, and yeah, I was just thinking. But it's also about how I'm you pre- build the wealth, Tommy, because you're talking yeah. about protecting that wealth and what you've accrued today. It's also about the fact that you might want to continue building the wealth. So we all talk about, well, financial freedom. I want to retire at X date or whatever it might be. Your dreams don't have to go or be given up just because of an accident or ill health. Those can still be a reality. And I think that's what people need to sort of consider is when you're looking at this is it's not just there as an expense. It's there to protect, as you quite rightly pointed out. And it's about just saying, well, look, I'm happy that there's a premium there. You sincerely hope you never claim on it. A bit like all insurance, you sincerely hope you never claim on it. But when you need it, you sincerely hope you've got it. You know, we have had experiences where we've seen the other side of it. Obviously, Tommy, you've seen it, but we've also seen the other side with critical illnesses and things like that. And we help people through their claims. The only gratification we can take from it or the comfort we can take from it is that the, the correct cover is in place for them. And that is one last thing, one less thing for the person who is either dying or is in a person in a p- pretty bad situation. They know that they don't have to worry about it. The one thing can I just raise that we haven't spoken about here is the NHS pension and ill health retirement pensions and tier one, tier two pensions, but also death in service lump sums and things like that. Is it right just to quickly cover off that as well? I would love you to because it's totally underrated feature of the NHS pension, in my opinion. Absolutely. Okay, right. So I'm sure there's copious amounts of this stuff on the Medics Money website. But just to reiterate, if you are a member of the NHS pension scheme, you receive some fairly good benefits with it. If you cannot work in your own occupation, you could be eligible for what's called a tier one pension. That is effectively the value of your pension to date that has been accrued. And you should be able to access that through your intranet or through the total reward statements online. I think it's recently changed to a different portal, but ultimately you can get an up-to-date statement. And what you have on that statement is effectively an indication as to what you would receive in the event you qualified for a tier one ill health pension. That means you cannot work in your own occupation. You have to go through a series of processes. It's not easy to attain. So when you're looking at income protection, you most likely will not take that into consideration that you would receive it but it's nice to know that it's there if it does pay out. The second tier pension is called a tier two pension. A tier two pension is that you cannot work in any occupation whatsoever and is probably more aligned traditionally with people who are terminally ill. And that means they could give you up to half of your remaining service added into the pension and then you get pensioned off for the rest of whatever life you have. Or if you are terminal, they might even give you a lump sum in lieu of that pension. And again, that's where you would probably want to talk to an advisor to walk you through that process and get some support on that. So I might sound a bit downbeat about it because it's purely in terms of my tone is because it's obviously not a very nice subject to be talking about if you're claiming on a tier one or a tier two pension, but they are really solid benefits that you're paying into and getting off the back of it. The final things then will be a dependent pension in the event of death and a death in service lump sum. So if you're in service, and you're in the pension, there would be a twice your pensionable earnings on, on average as a lump sum paid to you. There are variations between the schemes, but that's a sort of a good 
middle of the road test. And then there would also be a dependent's pension, a spouse's pension and children's pension. And again, depending on what scheme you're in, will determine as to how much you get. But these are all additional benefits. But with all these things, you need to determine whether you want to take those into consideration when you're looking at your protection needs or whether you want to keep them in isolation. And so they become as an added benefit to the family, but knowing you've then actually got separate protection. The reasons why you might keep them separate is purely down to the fact we don't know where your career is going to go or what you're going to do, whether that's going to change because a change in your working practices will have a direct impact on the level of those benefits you may get out. Yeah, I think like often I come across people who are like, oh yeah, I don't need life insurance because I've got the NHS lump sum. So this is just like, you need to check your own individual circumstances because you said the death in service payment is two times your pension will pay, right? So for me, two times my pension will pay is nowhere near enough to ensure that my family can live without me forevermore. And if that is enough with, for you, you've got a pretty decent NHS salary or massively low <laughs> outgoings, right? So, <laughs> you know, just, yeah, if that's what you're relying on, just maybe quickly check your maths and make sure it all adds up because I've seen a lot of people's maths on that and it's like, whoa, that's just not enough. Yeah, okay, that's really helpful. Are we going to talk about the murky world? I want to talk about the murky world of where to get the right policy for the right price because... Let's just say you're going to compare and contrast doing it yourself. Okay, pros and cons yep. of that uh, using a restricted financial advisor uh, or using an independent specialist medical advisor. Declaration of interest here. Me and Ed believe so passionately in the benefit of independent specialist medical advisors that we set up Medics Money. We only allow the very best independent specialist medical advisors on Medics Money. So that's my declaration of interest out of the way. You're probably going to do your declaration of interest, but let's start by looking at like do it DIY versus restricted versus independent. Okay, DIY, perfectly legitimate way of doing it. But are you getting the best cover for the money you're paying? Are you getting the right level of cover as well? So if you feel comfortable that you understand protection well enough and you understand your needs, then absolutely you can do it yourself. It is a misnomer that it's cheaper for you to do it yourself rather than going through an independent advisor it's not the case advisors we have the ability so again declaration i'm independent in my previous life i have been restricted so i have the ability to talk from both circumstances restricted what does that mean it means that the advisor you are speaking to is only going to talk to you about a limited range of products that might be one it might be two so that means you don't have much in the way of comparison as to whether you're getting good value or not I'm not going to say it's a sweeping generalisation, but in a lot of circumstances, we will see that restricted doesn't necessarily mean cheaper for you. There are instances, so again, being balanced, but on the whole, we tend to find that being independent and having the ability to see what is the cheapest available for you. And that's when it comes to things like income protection and life cover. You want to look at premium, but more important, when you come to critical illness cover, you want to be able to see the different definitions. You want to understand when someone might pay out or might not pay out. If you go direct yourself, you're only going to potentially look at one provider or two providers. Trying to make that differential and that, that judgment call might be harder for you. So the idea of using independent financial advisors, again, we both said we're biased on this, but really think it's important. There are no costs associated with taking advice from a financial advisor. There is commission paid. So you are paying it through the premium over the entire time of your 
holding that plan, but there is no cost associated with actually engaging with an advisor. Normally, there may be exceptions to that rule. But going to an advisor, you are going to receive full financial advice with a recommendation based on your personal circumstances. Why is that important? Well, if you do it yourself, that's buyer beware. You've only got yourself to blame if it's not correct or you've misread it or maybe there's no, there's, it's not going to do what you want it to do. If you go through a regulated financial advisor, you have the protection of the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority. If you have been misadvised, you have the ability to complain, the ability to have recourse. And I think that's a fundamental difference and a ra good rationale for why you would consider using a financial advisor, as well as getting the right level of protection. Now, when we were talking earlier about budgets and we were talking about gold standard of cover, that's where we always start, gold standard. If budgets are constrained, well, then we need to then decide, well, what is it you're going to pull back on? Is it how long it runs for? Is it the level of cover? Is it the term? And we can tweak things very quickly and easily to then come up with a bespoke suite, if you like, of products that match your personal circumstances. And I think it's then important to say that you need to have a continued review of those protection plans. Not every year necessarily, unless your circumstances change, but probably every two or three years, minimum every five years. Yeah. And like, especially if you got it out at medical school, maybe you got the hard sell, which lots of doctors get the hard sell at medical school. If you got that and you're now 10 years later with, you know, kids, a house and several other things going on, it's unlikely that original policy is going to be good enough 10 years later. So just get it, re get, reconsider it and have a look at it with an independent financial advisor who actually understands doctors, not a restricted advisor. I'm not putting words in your mouth. I think it's super interesting to have it from your point of view, right? Because the medical market is dominated by restricted advisors. That really annoyed us. And we're undominating that market now by doing medics money. But you've seen it from both sides. So you're as impartial as you can be because you've been a restricted advisor and then you set up your own independent firm. So this is such a massive point. It doesn't get enough airtime. The industry or lots of the industry don't really want to make this clear to you but hopefully that does make it clear is that fair anything that we need to retract to keep the lawyers happy because they do listen <laughs> i think it's uh, it's not to say if you're restricted it's wrong advice because that's clearly not the case it's about where you see the value and whether you value having truly independent advice over restricted Obviously, having been a restricted advisor myself, it was always the aspiration to, to run my own business, to be an independent financial advisor, because I wanted to make sure that I was able to, um, with a clear conscience, give truly independent and the best practice advice to my clients. And, and that is why I, I am a huge advocate of independent advice over other areas for no other reason apart from that. And I just think it's one of those, you know, if you want to know you're getting the best outcome go to the place where you think you're going to get the best level of opportunity to, to look at all of the options available to you rather than just going and looking at one particular area. hundred percent. So like you set up, you were restricted, you set up your own independent practice because you wanted to give the gold standard advice and Absolutely. not be restricted in the, as is that reason that me and Ed, when we started Medics Money, we could have offered restricted and independent financial advisors on the Medics Money platform. Our life would have been a lot easier. I would have got less snotty emails from restricted advisors telling me that I'm wrong. But we chose not to do that because like you, we wanted to offer the gold standard, the very best. If somebody goes to Medics Money and finds a financial advisor, 
I want them to know that they are the very best, someone that me and Ed would consider using. We only use independent financial advisors that specialize in medics ourselves. So why would we recommend anything else? So don't email me again. I'm really bored of getting emails from restrictive financial advisors. We better leave it there before we get in more trouble. Mike, <laughs> where is the best place to get in touch with you if they, people want to talk this through in detail with you? And you really, this is not advice, okay? This is just like information. If you want advice, you've got to get it specific to your circumstances. Your circumstances are different to mine, different to Mike's. But where can I get you? So obviously through you on the Medics Money website or you can come direct to our website at medicalandgeneral.co.uk or if you have mortgage and protection needs you can come to mortgagesfordoctors.com mortgages for doctors i like that does what i wonder what you specialize in there <laughs> hopefully it does what it says on the tin <laughs> yeah absolutely mike that was awesome thanks so much for your time and that was really helpful take care brilliant thanks so much